Hello and welcome to this Science AAAS webinar, part of our ongoing series addressing important, timely, and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. My name is Sean Sanders, and I'm Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. In today's discussion, we're tackling the topic of incarceration. Over the next hour, we will be asking a number of important questions, including what can be learned from the research into incarceration that can better inform us about crime prevention and recidivism reduction. We'll discuss how incarceration rates differ around the world and why there are such huge racial disparities in incarceration rates in the US. We also plan to investigate how incarceration impacts the health of the imprisoned individuals as well as their families and what effect this might have on society as a whole. Finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now, I'd like to welcome our wonderful in-studio panel today. Uh, just to my left is Ms. Catherine Hurd, who is joining us all the way from London in the UK, where she is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research based at Birkbeck University of London. Uh, next to Catherine is Dr. Jeff Moronoff. Uh, he is a professor in the Department of uh, Sociology, the Gerald R. Ford, R. Ford School of Public Policy, and the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. And finally, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Nazgul Gandnush, who is a senior research analyst with the Sentencing Project based right here in Washington, DC. Uh, welcome, all of you. Thanks for being here. Um, as per usual, I'm going to have you uh, introduce yourselves to our, our audience out there and tell them a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what brings you to the webinar. So Catherine, we'll start with you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, at ICPR in London, we have a uh, quite a well-known database called the World Prison Brief, and I believe that viewers can access this via the resources tab on the website right now. Mm -hmm. The World Prison Brief database has now been in existence for almost 20 years, and it holds data on the prison populations of virtually every country in the world. Um, and it uh, divides that data up according to a whole range of uh, subcategories, uh, so you can find out how many uh, prisoners there are in total in any given country, um, what proportion of those prisoners are pre-trial detainees, uh, how many are female detainees, non-nationals and juveniles, but there's also information on trends within countries uh, and rankings. So it's an amazing resource, but more recently we've built uh, an international comparative research program that uh, builds on that foundation. And so hopefully I'm going to be able to bring you some of the insights of that program today and bring a truly international perspective to our discussion. Wonderful. Thank you, Catherine. Jeff? Thanks, Sean. I'm also delighted to be here. Uh, my research touches on a few themes that are relevant to today's discussion. One of them is the effects of incarceration on later life outcomes. And that research focuses on outcomes like recidivism, uh, employment and labor market experiences, and also health and well-being of people who have been incarcerated. Uh, another theme is life after prison. Uh, what happens to people? What are the challenges and opportunities they face when they get out of prison? We look, uh, I have a book that recently was published with my co-authors, David Harding and Jessica Wise, called On the Outside. And it focuses on the four main social contexts that people experience when they leave prison. One is families reuniting, if they have family to, to reunify with, um, the neighborhoods that they encounter, their labor market situation, and then also criminal justice institutions such as uh, community supervision. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention is that I have the privilege of participating in a national program called the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program for teaching inside of prisons. And what we do is uh, we run college level seminars inside of state and federal prison institutions. Um, mine is a criminal justice seminar. The inside refers to the, the, the men and women in prison who are students. The outside refers to the university students and myself who come into these facilities and we just have regular college seminars. It's some of the most rewarding teaching that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you, Jeff. Nasco? Sure. So I'm a senior researcher at the Sentencing Project, an organization that works for a more fair and effective criminal justice system. And so that means reducing racial disparities in incarceration and reducing the overall number of people in prison. 
and we conduct research as well as engage in advocacy. And so on the research end, uh, we do our own original research and synthesize the work that's done by academic scholars for a public audience, so for the general public, for practitioners and lawmakers. And the goal is to bridge the divide between what we're doing with our criminal justice system and what we know we should be doing based on evidence. And so an example of that is that we know one in seven people in the United States is uh, in prison. One in seven people in prison is serving a life sentence. And so the Sentencing Project has engaged in a campaign over the course of the past year to end life imprisonment and limit prison terms to 20 years. Fantastic. Thank you, Nasco. Um, once again, thank you all for being here. It's really nice to have you. I think this is going to be a really exciting discussion, so I'm, I'm keen to get going. I know we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, what I thought I would do is to structure this uh, around the, the, the timeline for uh, the prison experience. So from entry into prison through the imprisonment experience um, and then to re-entry, uh, as Jeff talked about some of the work that, that he's published. Um, so wh what I'd like to do to start this off is to um, ask maybe a, something of a, a moral or a philosophical question, and that is, what is the primary aim of prison as you see it? Uh, is it simply to, to warehouse people, uh, to keep society safe, um, or is it a place for rehabilitation? Um, so, Jeff, why don't we, we start off with you? What are your thoughts? Sure. Well, philosophers sometimes talk about two broad categories of approaches to what prisons are for. There's the, the so-called consequentialist view, which focuses on changing people, um, which could be changing through rehabilitation. It could be changing through deterrence to kind of in, in some ways deter or scare them from committing crimes for fear of punishment in the future. And it can also change people through incapacitating them, taking them off the streets, making it harder and were impossible for them to commit crimes. Um, that's in contrast to the retributivist view, which is that we send people to prison in retribution for to kind of balance the moral scales for the crimes and offenses that they've committed. Uh, I think that over time in this country, um, public sentiment has shifted. Um, a while back it was much more anchored in the consequentialist views and rehabilitation was considered a viable enterprise. Then in the 60s and 70s, that's, the ground started to shift. We started to disbelieve that rehabilitation was possible um, and deterrence became more important. Um, but retribution also became a more dominant theme. And now I think we're seeing a shift back towards understanding that there, rehabilitation is possible and, mm -hmm. and that, um, that just simply warehousing people is um, financially very costly and morally very costly because of the disruption that it has on the people who are being warehoused. And I think we're at a moment where there could be a shift towards trying to think of more productive uses of that time. Uh, in prison, but still at a point where we are where effectively warehousing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So Catherine, does this uh, mirror what you're seeing internationally? Well, internationally, um, there is a huge disparity between uh, you know, national attitudes, socio-political uh, framing of the, of the questions around um, punishment and the r wider response to crime and disorder. Mm -hmm. um, what we have seen is a growing use of imprisonment and uh, a lengthening of prison sentences. Over the past couple of decades, there's been an exponential rise in the use of imprisonment to deal with all manner of, of uh, social ills. So in terms of what it's for, I, I feel that there's not nearly enough uh, focus on what prison is for, what is the purpose, what do we expect a prison sentence to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, governments could do well to apply a more scientific and evidence-led mm -hmm. approach to that because what we have seen with our work is that there are a number of adverse, un unintended adverse consequences to simply warehousing individuals. Mm -hmm. After all, you know, 90% or more of individuals will be released from prison, even in America, which uses life sentences an awful lot. And what happens when they've been completely institutionalized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so Nazgul, just to come to you for a second on, uh, to um, take what uh, Catherine was just saying, is, is um, prison an effective deterrent in fact and w what does the evidence show um, as far as that's concerned? 
So what the evidence shows is that what is an effective deterrent is the likelihood of being caught for your crime rather than the severity of punishment that mm -hmm. you receive. And right now in the United States, you can you know, and fairly expect that you can commit very serious crimes and actually not be caught and convicted. And so prison is not an effective deterrent uh, when a lot of crimes go unpunished. And so instead what we see is that policymakers and the general public has supported uh, relying on very long sentences um, with this idea that if people know they're going to be sent away for a very long time, they're, they're not going to engage in you know, criminal conduct. But actually, um, not only do people not expect to get caught, but a lot of times they actually don't realize what the penalty is that they would be facing for their crime. And so uh, what we know is that when we send people away for a very long time, they do age out of crime. Um, there's very little rehabilitative investment that's made in them, but even without that, they're able to transform themselves and there still remains a reluctance to recognize that we're incarcerating people beyond the point that's necessary. Can I add one point to that? Sure. Um, to introduce some more scientific jargon, uh, criminologists often distinguish between specific and general deterrence. And uh, although the names are not as intuitive as they could be, the specific deterrence refers to the idea that if you, if you get punished for a particular crime, that would specifically make you less likely to do that again in the future. And general deterrence is more about sending a word, a message to broader society that um, crime does not pay, that you could get caught and punished, and it's going out to a more general group of people, regardless of what their specific criminal background might be. And just to piggyback on what Nazgal was saying, um, to put it, and to put it in these terms, I think that the evidence for the effectiveness of general deterrence is stronger than it is for specific deterrence. Um, that, so sending people to prison is generally not a, uh, an effective form of deterrence. Um, and, and in fact, it can have the opposite effect of enhancing um, involvement in crime after prison. Mm -hmm. um, there's more evidence that investments in, say, policing, for example, um, as a form of general deterrence uh, can, in some cases, effectively reduce crime for, mm -hmm. by increasing the certainty that um, you'll get caught and punished for the crimes that you commit, not by the severity of the, of the, of the sentence that you receive. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, deterrence is actually one of the weaker arguments for imprisonment mm. because it sort of relies on a, an idea of someone rationally weighing up the pros and cons or the likelihood of a, a long or a medium length prison sentence mm -hmm. before committing a crime. But what we know about the vast swathe of offending is that it's, it's impulsive, it's mm. often driven by drink and drugs, um, yeah. desperation. So, you know, people don't do that kind of rational calculation. Right. So deterrence sort of depends on that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Just to pick up on, on something that you, Jeff and Nazgul were saying, uh, as far as length of sentences, so if, if the length of a sentence is, is not an effective deterrent, there seems to be good evidence for that, but what, what are some of the effects of a long sentence relative to a short sentence? And so maybe one of you can talk to that, and Catherine, I know we'll, I want to come to you uh, to talk about the UK in particular, which has shorter prison sentences. Um, shorter than America. Than, than America, yeah. 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 So uh, Nazgul? Well, one effect of long sentences is that it increases the overall population that's incarcerated. Just mathematically, when you send people into prison and you hold them there for a long time, you end up having a lot more people in prison. Um, another consequence of imprisoning people for a long time is the cost. It becomes very expensive to imprison people into old age, and we have a lot of elderly people in prison. And the reason for that is that you know elderly people need more health care, and in a prison setting, that means health care with multiple guards if they if you need to be taken off the premises for example mm -hmm. and so it makes it so that in the United States where we still don't have universal pre you know early education for everybody where we still don't have um, you know universal access to health insurance we haven't invested in these kinds of um, programs and policies that we know would help to improve life prospects and limit crime but instead we're imprisoning people into old age for crimes they committed a long time ago and it's not an effective way of using limited re public resources in order to advance public safety I, I would just add that another of the reasons that Nazgul listed for it not being an effective deterrent is what criminologists refer to as the age crime curve. Mm -hmm. So there's a very well-known and pronounced de precipitous decline in, in rates of offending as 
people move into actually past their early 20s, depending on the type of crime, you, you see a different peak for, for violent versus nonviolent crimes. But as people go into their late 20s and their 30s, and certainly their 40s and 50s, um, rates of offending are, are way down. So mm -hmm. we're we are holding people with long sentences for a, a lot longer than we need to where there are risks for public safety uh, mm -hmm. in many cases. And so that's just another part to add to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the use of imprisonment is seen in some countries as a much more extreme intervention than, than it is in others. So for example, in Scandinavian countries and in the Netherlands, uh, the use of imprisonment really is seen as an absolute last resort. So they will try a number of interventions first. Um, the interesting evidence that's come out of the UK recently um, is to compare the effect uh, on recidivism of sh short sentences, six months or less, mm -hmm. with uh, community-based sanctions. Um, and what that evidence shows is that re-offending rates are higher for people who have been to prison. Mm -hmm. And we can get into the reasons for that, but I mean, we need to remember that imprisonment is criminogenic. Mm -hmm. It gives rise to more crime. It's for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the other factors um, that might come out of these, especially longer prison sentences, um, that you mentioned um, prior to the webinar, a breakdown of support structures like family. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the cost of prison um, and the impact on indebtedness of, of the prisoners um, and also difficulty finding jobs. So um, maybe you could talk to a few of those as well, Jeff. Sure. We're talking about after prison now? Or um, yes. Okay. I, I think we'll so. We'll, we'll get a little bit deeper into that later, <laughs> but I, I, you know, while we yeah. were there, I thought we'd, we'd talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so at least in the research that I've done, employment rates in general for people coming out of prison are quite low. Like we're talking about 35 to 40% maybe at, at, at the most optimistic, and there are also racial differences. Um, it's not just finding a job, but also maintaining a job that can be very challenging. Um, and a lot of people who do, are lucky enough to find work are, are relegated to what we call the secondary labor market, where uh, work is, uh, hours are more sporadic and less stable, and um, there's not as much opportunity for promotion and for long-term stable employment. Um, so, uh, I can't remember the other parts of the question that you asked mm -hmm. me now. One was about employment. Um, yeah, yeah, difficulty, uh, indebtedness. Oh, indebtedness, is yeah. it? Yeah. So, there's a lot of focus on fines and fees right now. Um, mm -hmm. And this is in part uh, something that's faced by people coming out of prison, but also by people who have been diverted from prison and are in the community corrections system. But uh, for people coming out of prison, I've seen estimates that, uh, that fines and fees could, could jump from up to 30 to 60 percent of one's annual income. So mm. just keeping up with supervision fees and restitution fees and mm. other kinds of um, fees that, that are introduced by the criminal justice system can be quite challenging and, and make it make people's lives even less economically secure. And then just to add one more piece about what happens inside a prison is that the families of those who have loved ones incarcerated are really adversely affected mm. by these same set of circumstances and then other things like collect calls from prison um, that, that, that add up a lot. Cost um, of visits. Visits mm -hmm. are, are tremendously and phone difficult. calls, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so if, if families are shouldering a lot of the burden of helping people when they get out of prison, which I believe they are, um, they're being really adversely affected, especially mm -hmm. by longer prison sentences, and they're mm -hmm. less able to, to take on that responsibility. And I'd say what Jeff described reinforces the notion of how prison, the experience of incarceration reinforces poverty. I mean, mm. We know that it's disproportionately poor people that go to prison in the United States, and in particular, it's disproportionately poor people of color. So, for example, Bruce Westerns estimated that two-thirds of um, African-American young men who lack a high school degree will end up in prison at mm. some point in their lives. And that's not even a short jail stay, that's a prison stay of typically a year or longer, so two-thirds of that yeah. population. But it's not just that poverty is more likely to lead to the to experience of incarceration, it's that incarceration reinforces uh, and exa exacerbates the experience of poverty, in particular among communities of color. 
It's mm -hmm. a vicious cycle, and, right. and what people forget is that a lot of these costs fall back onto the state and the taxpayer in the end. So when so, you know when someone goes to prison and the family is no longer provided for, children may have to be cared for by the state. Uh, the, the cost of welfare is uh, is going to be higher. So I think it's time to be much more realistic about all of the direct mm -hmm. and indirect costs of overuse of incarceration. Mm -hmm. So Catherine, let me stay with you. I, I wanted to ask about how countries around the world see and handle punishment and incarceration. Um, and also, we'll also talk uh, with Jeff and Nazgul about why the US has such a high incarceration rate. And just to give you a statistic actually from the Sentencing Project website, which was very helpful. Thank you for that. Um, the US leads the world in incarceration of its citizens, uh, 655 per 100,000. Um, and this is the highest in the world. Um, above El Salvador, Turkmenistan, Thailand, and Rwanda. Um, Canada's incarceration rate, just to the north of us, is one-fifth of the US, at about 107 to 114 per 100,000, depending on, I found a few different stats on that one. Um, France is about 104 per 100,000, Germany 77, Denmark 66, Sweden 59. Um, so, Catherine, maybe you can speak to some of those numbers. Yeah, it's lovely to know that the data on the World Prison Brief database ends up um, <laughs> being so useful to fantastic organizations like the Sentencing Project and others. It's, it's a great resource. But I know that the U.S. data is a little slow at the moment. It's not, as, it's not being produced in as timely way as mm -hmm. it used to be. So that's a little bit of a concern. That's an aside. But, I mean, the U.S. hasn't always been top of the chart. Um, you know, uh, Russia was, was the leading incarceration nation for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are different reasons for countries to have, uh, you know, high levels of incarceration. In many countries, the uh, proportion of pretrial detainees is extraordinary. So before you even get into the, the punishment question, imagine, you know, in India, nearly 70% of all prisoners in that country are pre-trial. Mm. So they're not yet tried or finally sentenced. So that is a, a should be one which, which countries with high pre-trial detention rates are addressing as a matter of urgency. But yeah, moving to your question about different attitudes uh, to the use of imprisonment. Um, I mean, across the world, prison systems and the conditions that people are held in differ enormously, mm -hmm. as do the length of time um, that people are sent to prison for in response to different types of offending. There are, uh, you know, just endless variations. Um, but what we have seen is that there is one continent among five that has reduced its use of incarceration overall in the last two decades, and that's Europe. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big reasons for that is Russia bringing its pre-trial detention rate right down. And many other countries have followed suit. Um, there are some outliers in Europe. So England and Wales has one of the highest rates of incarceration. It's a very mixed picture in Europe. But I can distinguish a sort of uh, a part of the European penal culture which is more, uh, more socially just and more rehabilitation focused. And that, as I said before, is centered around the Nordic states in particular and, uh, and the Netherlands. So there are some, I mean, the Finland, for example, one third of the country's very small prison population is held in open conditions. Mm. So many of these open prisons have no walls, no fences. People are held there, you know, when they go out, which is often they, they're el electronically monitored. There's a principle of no detriment apart from the loss of liberty that mm. runs through the, the Finnish um, penal philosophy. Um, and in the Netherlands, in the Dutch Penitentiary Act, there is a, a rule that uh, the purpose of imprisonment is rehabilitation. And in terms of sentencing, what that means is that sentences, if a custodial sentence has to be used, it is no longer than necessary to achieve rehabilitation, re-socialization of that individual. And again, there is a, a huge emphasis on normalizing the conditions of incarceration as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. is that, a, is that a, a, a cultural norm in the country? Is, is that, does it come from the people of the country or does that come from the leaders? People have spent a lot of time theorizing about this. Um, you know, there are political economists that have looked at the differences in the way that these countries have organized uh, their welfare state. Um, there's a much greater, stronger safety net 
Um, you know, I went to the Netherlands to, to visit a prison recently, but whilst I was traveling around the country, I, I don't think I saw anyone sleeping on the streets. Mm. They don't have the, the, you know, the critical problems that my country does with homelessness right now. And all of these factors are connected, you know. So if, if you invest more in uh, education, in the health service, in mental health facilities, you know, it may cost more in taxes, but there will be savings in terms of public security, uh, and there will be a much less need for uh, for the use of imprisonment. Uh, we've got a lot of lessons to learn from from some of these countries, but uh, yeah. Something I appreciated about Catherine's account about decarceration in Scandinavian countries is that it highlights the disconnect between crime and incarceration. That the reduction in the prison population didn't happen because crime rates went down. It, it happened as a result of changing policies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, we uh, one of the interesting things I think that uh, when I look at crime patterns and incarceration patterns is that internationally many countries ha experienced an uptick in crime starting in the 1970s, it continued in the 80s, and it started to turn around in the 1990s. And so if even uh, in the United States, for example, a lot of people may not recognize that we are at really quite uh, relatively safe levels in terms of crime in our in in recent history. So right now, the crime rate in the United States, the homicide rate, violent crime rate, property crime rate, is about half the level that it used to be at in the 1990s. And that's true for many other countries. If you look at Canada, just to the north, it followed a similar trend. Even though violent crime rates in the United States are higher than Canada, but the pattern of change has been the same. But one thing that makes the United States exceptional is creating the problem of mass incarceration in response to rising crime rates and continuing to escalate incarceration levels even as crime rates fell. Mm -hmm. um, and only in the last couple of years has that pattern begun to change. We, we cannot overestimate, but you cannot underestimate the importance of the war on drugs on this. I was just going to come to that, so thank you uh, yeah. for bringing that up. Yeah, ask, yeah, yeah. ask away, but yeah. uh, I mean, the US started its war on drugs, I think, under Nixon and mm -hmm. Uh, we have steadily seen um, a ramping up of sentence lengths, um, and and you know the the consequences of that have have been greatly felt. Uh, in the, and it, it's not just the U.S. either. I mean, some of the countries we're studying closely at the moment have had a similar phenomenon. Thailand um, has seen uh, really unsustainable increases in the use of incarceration, and you can get a prison sentence for possession for personal use there. Mm. Um, right. Um, not to discount the role of the war on drugs, because I agree with everything that Catherine is saying, but to put a slight caveat on that statement, we would still have mass incarceration in this country even if you take away the drug crimes. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think it's, as I think Nazgul was referring to it in her opening remarks, I mean, it's important to think about, when we, th when we talk about decarceration, about not just nonviolent offenders, but, but people who are in for violent crimes. Yeah. There, um, there was a really excellent report from the National Academy of Sciences a few years ago on the causes and consequences of mass incarceration. And one of the takeaways from that report was that th this didn't happen through some kind of natural set of forces like, like changes in the age structure or the ebb and flow of, of, of crime rates. That really was mass incarceration, a story about conscientious political actions that were taken, and, mm. and, and especially changes in sentencing laws. And we went from a system that legal scholars characterized um, in the, up to the 1970s and before that as one of indeterminate sentencing mm. to one that's, that's more based on determinate sentencing. So what that means is that an indeterminate sentencing model is one in which the judge has a lot of leeway to decide, based on the individual characteristics of the person, of the defendant, what, what an appropriate sentence is, and then also to let people out for good behavior if they're, if, they've, if they're languishing in prison but don't seem to pose any threat to public safety. Determinate sentences um, are things like mandatory minimum sentences, truth in sentencing laws, and other ones that legislatively determine how much time somebody's going to serve without any kinds of nuances about what the individual characteristics are of that person and that create longer prison sentences across the board. Mm -hmm. um, one good change, I think, that happened during that time period, though, was um, a move as part of a sentencing reform, was they also introduced uh, the idea of sentencing guidelines, uh, which makes um, sentencing a little bit more transparent and fair. Um, and 
there's some evidence that it's reduced disparities, and we see some reduction in disparities that's in the news this week, as, mm -hmm. a, as a matter of fact, that's more pronounced in states that have what are called presumptive guidelines, that judges are, uh, are given some latitude for, for how they decide on sentences, but they're also presumed to be, to be following some guidelines that are in place. Um, not all guidelines are equally effective, but uh, that's one change that's probably been for the better. Um, but uh, the point that I'm, the broader point I'm trying to make is that uh, changes in sentencing laws have had a really big impact on incarceration yeah. rates. So, so policy does work. <laughs> yeah, yes. right. That's good. I mean, another yeah. massive uh, uh, increase uh, that uh, of what drives high incarceration rates that we've seen lately is the increasing use of recall to prison for uh, breaches of parole breaches of uh, mm -hmm. uh, license conditions. Yeah. So that's driven r rates up a lot. And perhaps we could do with a little bit more discretion around that so that people aren't being continually recalled for very minor infractions or for things that, that they can't actually help. Mm -hmm. um, and breaches of probation, too, when people are doing a community service, uh, a sort of some kind of community sanction, but they, uh, they breach it. Um, do we always want to, to have prison as the default mm -hmm. setting to that, or do we want a more nuanced um, uh, approach? So and, and my understanding is longer parole often leads to greater rates of imprisonment or, mm. or re-entry. Yeah, parole can, can be very, very long. I mean, when you get a life sentence in England and Wales, you have a life license. When, when you're finally released after serving your tariff, which could be 20 years or so, then you will be on a lifetime license. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's an old idea in criminology called net widening, mm. and that is that uh, in an effort to try to divert more people from prison, we offer different kinds of supervision, but that could be ultimately widening the net of people caught in the criminal justice system. Mm. And so you know, probation, which is community supervision in, instead of going to prison, and parole, which is community supervision after, um, at the end of one's pr prison sentence, are both um, things that we should be making more use of, probably. Um, they're less costly and less damaging to people than, than custodial forms of, of, of sanctions, but they do have consequences. And one of the main ones is that to go back to prison when you're under community supervision, there could be two pathways. One of them is to commit a new crime, like a new felony offense, but the other one is to um, have a so-called technical violation of the terms of your supervision. And that's what, uh, in, in, the, in the work that I've done on the so-called revolving door between mm -hmm. prison and society, it's these technical violations that are really driving up rates of, mm. of reincarceration. Um, and, and the most common forms of these technical violations are failure to report to, um, mm. to your parole officer, failure to complete or participate in some kind of programming that you've been given, and then failed drug tests. Mm -hmm. So these are not what most of us would consider to be serious offenses, but, um, but you know, to give credit to the, the parole officers, they are important parts of, of being on parole. Mm -hmm. The failed drug tests, I think, is a really important one to highlight because right now in um, about a dozen states in the, uh, in the United States, you can recreationally use marijuana as an adult, but if you're on probation or parole supervision, that same exact behavior, if you're caught, can, uh, can send you back to mm -hmm. prison. And so I think Vinny, Vincent Chiraldi is a great leader in this area. He used to run the probation department in New York City, and what he said is that a lot of times probation can end up being a tripwire for mm -hmm. people, and the, the solution to this tripwire sending people back to, to prison. The solution to this is not just giving people more services, not just you know trying to address crime rates, but to recognize that a lot of people are unnecessarily on supervision, that we need to scale back terms of supervision to not really more than, typically not necessarily more than three years, whereas many people are on probation or parole for five, 10, 15 years. And so any behavior that anybody would engage in, like if you know potentially using marijuana, missing a meeting, those kinds of things should not lead to your incarceration mm -hmm. since just because you're on probation supervision and you don't even need to be because you're a low risk person. Mm -hmm. well, just one more word on that. Um, mm -hmm. Some other research that we did that was really eye-opening for us was the, the, the consequences of so-called intermediate sanctions, which are like short-term, usually jail sentences, sometimes prison, um, for often imposed for technical violations. And these could be incredibly disruptive um, to people's 
efforts to stay employed. Um, mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons that people lose mm -hmm. jobs a lot is, right. is because they violate the terms of their parole and they go back for even a short uh, stint in jail or prison. An another really stunning statistic we found was we, in Michigan, we, we, t we, we got data on the life histories or the residential histories of people who were coming out of prison and we found that on average, the average parolee um, moves over two and a half times per year. Per year. Wow. And that's an incredibly disruptive right. existence. Um, part of it is due to housing insecurity and difficulty finding stable housing, but a big part of it is also due to these intermediate sanctions, which take people out of their residential context, put them back in a custodial mm -hmm. context, and then spit them back out again. Actually, something you said just very briefly um, that some of our, our audience might not be aware of, the difference between jail and yes. prison, if you could just very quickly yes. define Yes, in the United States, uh, prisons are uh, state and federal run institutions that typically house people from, who have felony convictions or have been returned due to a violation of their parole. And usually people serve, it's for a new crime, uh, two years or more in prison. Um, jails are usually locally run facilities, uh, municipalities or counties um, that house a number of different types of people. Some people are serving time awaiting trial, pretrial detention. Um, other people um, on shorter sentences, usually less than a year or less than two years. <clears throat> Great. So, I, Nazgul, I want to come to you um, for something that we really haven't touched on that I think is a very important topic, and that's, that's racial disparity. Um, so another statistic I wanted to put out there was uh, the lifetime likelihood of incarceration um, in the U.S. for white men is one in 17. It's one in six for Latino men and one in three for black men. Um, and these numbers are equally as stark for women. Um, so the, the question I want to ask is, is, I mean, it's very clear, in the, it, particularly in the U.S., there is there's structural racism, there's institutionalized racism. Um, and this was actually uh, talked about very nicely uh, in the movie 13th um, from uh, Ava, Ava DuVernay and uh, uh, Spencer Averick, um, where they drew a very clear line between structural racism and the prison population. I wonder if you can talk to that. Sure. I would say the structural racism plays out in two ways. Um, and a lot of people tend to move in one direction or the other in trying to understand the disparities we have in our prison system of why over 60% of the prison population is black or Latino. So one way is that um, because of higher levels of poverty, concentrated urban poverty among African Americans in the United States, that community both uh, is more likely to experience very violent crime, uh, such as homicide, and the, that community is also more likely to commit homicide. And so we have, when you look at the most serious crimes, higher rates of offending among African Americans. If you flip the script in our society and you had white Americans disproportionately living in urban poverty, you would have higher rates of homicide offending among whites. Um, but so that's in terms of, you know, that you don't see that kind of disparity in offending when you look at lower level offenses, as in particular for drug crimes. Americans use drugs at similar rates and yet African Americans are much more likely to be arrested, even, for example, if you look at marijuana possession. Uh, over over three times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession for African Americans versus whites. But then we also have, and so that speaks to the disparities that we have within our justice system that comes from not just, uh, you know, in part bias on the part of criminal justice practitioners. So who do police officers stop and when they stop them, who do they search? And when they search them, do they arrest them? All of that is more likely to be something that African American and Latino drivers experience compared to whites. But it's not just individual discretion, it's also uh, our laws and policies. So for example, drug-free school zones, which my colleague Nicole Porter has written about. Uh, drug-free school zones enhance penalties for selling drugs near schools. But what that means is that or people living in urban dense areas are much more likely to get an enhanced penalty for selling drugs near a school area. And um, because of the demographics of who lives in urban areas in our society versus who lives in rural and suburban areas. And so there are a number of examples like this, of like the crack cocaine sentencing disparity, mm -hmm. policies and policing. Um, and so on top of this, there are the factors of poverty that make people have worse outcomes in the criminal justice system. If you can't, if you're held pretrial, if you can't afford um, an experienced private attorney, um, all of that makes it more likely that you're going to be incarcerated for an offense. Um, and that is more likely to be something that people of color are going to have to struggle with. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, you, you see this internationally? 
Yes, very much so. I mean, we're engaged in a 10-country project right now, as I mentioned at the beginning, and it's extraordinary. You see the same patterns um, mm. in so many countries of very different types. Um, so, for example, in Hungary, which is one of our European countries, we see a vast over-representation of people from a Gypsy and Roma community mm. in the prison population compared to in the general. In Australia, um, whilst indigenous people make up around 2% of the national population, they make up well over 20% of the prison population. Uh, in, in the Netherlands, uh, we have a very large proportion of people in custody who are, in fact, the Dutch don't keep statistics on the um, ethnicity uh, uh, or race of their prisoners, but what they do keep is a record of the parentage. So what's your heritage? And so around 60% of people have a non-Dutch heritage who are in prison right now. Mm -hmm. um, and the reasons for, for these disparities are, um, you know, are documented to a greater or, or lesser extent in different countries. So in England, there was a, a very influential report by David Lammy MP a couple of years ago that found that, um, as Nazgul pointed out, you know, a lot of the um, a, a lot of the disparity arises at the policing stage. So, who's mm. being stopped and searched? Uh, who gets to be diverted away? Who gets to, to hire a, a lawyer to mm -hmm. to help them be diverted if it's their first offence? And who is just uh, left with a badly funded legal aid lawyer um, and hoping for the best? Mm -hmm. So, you know, race race is a factor in pretty much every country where there is structural inequality in place. Um, and do you see the same connection with poverty that Nazgul was talking about? Yeah, um, I mean prisons around the world are uh, a microcosm of, of society in many ways. So um, poverty, people who are in prison overwhelmingly come from backgrounds of poverty, social marginalization, low educational attainment, uh, underemployment, um, and we haven't talked about health inequality, but mm -hmm. mental and physical health problems uh, for a variety of reasons are far more uh, prevalent among prison and criminally, criminal justice involved populations than they are in the general, mm -hmm. which is a, a poverty factor too. Mm -hmm. Right. That actually segues very nicely into my next question, which was going to be about health. Um, so the, what I was wondering is, um, is the I guess you've just answered the question that the um, rate of mental health illness is higher in prison populations. My question is, is it higher in those entering the prison population as well? Yeah, both. I mean, prison is both a site and a cause of bad mm. physical and mental health. Um, but, you know, people with uh, mental health problems and with substance abuse problems are so easily propelled into the criminal justice system um, when uh, you know alternative approaches may well be more effective and humane. So, but yeah, I mean the proportion of people in custody with uh, often unmet, uh, previously undiagnosed mental health needs is very, very large, mm -hmm. and that should be a concern. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I know you've you've done some work on this as well. Did you have any thoughts? Yeah. Uh, to agree with everything that Catherine said and to add a couple of nuances, one of them is that uh, one of the challenges in studying the effects of incarceration on health is to differentiate between the time that somebody's in prison and then the longer term effects when people get out mm -hmm. of prison. And I and others in my research have found that there are some short term health benefits um, to being in prison, which are in some ways sad commentaries on what life is like outside of prison for a lot of these same groups that. that or people that go to prison. There is more regular health care that people receive um, uh, while they're in prison. And they're also, um, removed by re being removed from society, you're also being, you have a reduction in so-called external causes of mortality, such as uh, violence, homicide, and injury-related deaths, suicide as well, although that's not totally avoided in prison. That's one of the bigger causes of, of death in prison. Um, and then that's a short, and, and there's also some research that suggests that those, that benefit, so to speak, from being imprisoned on health is greater for African Americans than it is for whites because mm -hmm. the health care that they receive outside of prison um, might be more sporadic and worse. Mm -hmm. um, but on, over the longer term, the evidence is that it's a, it, it, it's a very harmful 
um, effect on people's long-term health and well-being. Um, in, in our research, we differentiate between just the, the cumulative exposure that people have to being in prison for longer lengths of time and the churning that people experience going in and out. And we actually, we actually find that that churning component is, is it adversely affects the health of people too, um, like the more times you go in and out of prison. I would add to this uh, about substance use disorder. People that are incarcerated have much higher rates of substance use disorder than the general population. And yet um, most prisons and jails in the United States fail to provide professional treatment for, for that problem. Um, and that would be a problem that brings people into prison because they're selling drugs or because they, you know, some of them have committed other crimes as a result of their substance use issues. And in particular during the current opioid crisis, it really stands out that, for example, very few prison systems in the country, with some exceptions like in Rhode Island, um, offer um, methadone or buprenorphine, the kinds of gold standard treatments for um, opioid addiction. And so that really kind of stands out, I think, for me as, you know, where, where there's growing awareness in our country that we have an opioid crisis. Um, we still rely on incarceration, not as much as we used to for handling that problem, but there are a lot of people with opioid use disorder that are in prisons and jails. And we keep them there without treatment. And sometimes people that are that are getting treatment in the community go to jail and prison and they lose access to that treatment mm -hmm. while incarcerated. And as we were discussing um, before this, this actually, uh, it's not just a, um, a reflection of our opioid crisis, but it also contributes to it because a lot of times when people are released from confinement, they go back to substance use and they're at an especially high risk of overdose death because their tolerance is low. Mm -hmm. They are not using the uh, appropriate amount because of you know increasing prevalence of fentanyl and the drugs that they're using. And so in, that, in this kind of way, incarceration and using uh, jails and prisons as a, as a response to drug use disorder actually makes it, can make it worse. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to come to a, a couple of questions that we had uh, from our online audience around this topic. Um, the one is, um, this uh, viewer says that many pr uh, imprisoned people are mentally ill and are under medicated or not medicated. So how can this be addressed? Uh, Jeff, can you talk to that? Is, is this being looked at? Is this something that um, is of concern or are we just ignoring it? Right. I'll caveat this by saying this is not my primary area of expertise, but um, there are, as Catherine said, there are plenty of people who enter prison with um, mental illness and the response is usually to more medication um, than, than other kinds of therapy. Uh, that, that are, that's an easier way to treat the, the problem within prisons. Those problems can be exacerbated, especially if people um, experience solitary confinement or so-called mm -hmm. administrative segregation, um, which, which people with mental illness are arguably at greater risk of experiencing, of mm -hmm. being put aside from the rest of the, of the general population. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, um, as I think Catherine said, it could be both a, it, it, people enter in with problems, but then they also get, the prison does create new problems for people mm -hmm. with pre-existing conditions. And I mean, mental health vulnerability isn't the only kind of vulnerability that we see in incarcerated populations. So prison is known to have uh, far more adverse effects on the mental health of young people, uh, on women, on LGBT prisoners, people mm -hmm. with disabilities. Nazgul mentioned the aging prisoner population. And this is a ticking time bomb right now, partly due to the increased length of very long sentences, but also because of people being picked up for historical offences. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, prisons are simply not equipped to deal with the complex health needs of older people who are presenting with cognitive impairment and mm -hmm. chronic health problems. And I, I'd also like to mention that you know we're talking about American prisons quite a lot here. Um, but remember that, you know, across the world, at least 60% of countries are running their prisons over capacity right now. And some of them have phenomenal levels of overcrowding. Mm. So imagine the kind of public health risks that come from that. Prisons can be a hotbed for contagious disease spread, mm. TB, HIV. It's actually very difficult to get access to the treatments and the drugs that you need. Mm. There are inadequate screening programs. And this affects wider communities, families. It affects prison staff and their families. Mm. So there is a public health aspect to this that is often overlooked, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, Catherine, a question that came in that I, th I think would be addressed to you is how many countries uh, in the international database uh, use solitary confinement and to what extent? That's a really interesting question. I can, I can tell you that there is a, a world expert on this issue that's written a book and has a huge amount of resource on her mm -hmm. website, and her name's Sharon Shalev. Um, but I, I know that there's a vast proportion um, of, of countries that informally or formally use um, separation. But it tends to be, um, I, I, you know, Canada and the USA have uh, been challenged in, um, in, in courts about this as a, as a human rights abuse. And there is, uh, you know, its use is, is also widespread for the so-called protection of prisoners. It's used a lot in, in England uh, mm -hmm. for that reason. But um, it is, uh, it's, it's a highly damaging um, process. I can't give you the exact number, but it tends to be countries with the resources to isolate and to monitor people. So it tends to be the more developed countries that use solitary confinement. It's mm -hmm. The opposite thing happens in uh, countries with overcrowded and under-resourced prisons, which is that people are crammed together uh, in, um, you know, maybe, you know, I, I've heard of people being in, held in communal cells which were built for 30, but they, you know, put three or four times that number of right. people in them. So <laughs> there's, a, there's the other side of the, right. the case. And a lot of those people might prefer to be held in isolation because imagine the misery. But I mean, right. either situation is, is extremely deleterious for health, mm -hmm. mental and physical. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to use the last few minutes that we have left to talk about re-entry um, and also some of the, the areas of reform um, and the changes that we're seeing. So, um, Jeff, I'm going to come to you just to ask, what, what are some of the factors um, that impact re-entry? And we, we have covered some of them already, but would you like to expand on any in particular? Sure. I guess I would expand on two of them, um, the key role of families in supporting people coming out. And this is a resource not, that not everybody has equal access to, but um, and as we've talked about already, family as an economic institution can be weakened by having a loved one incarcerated. Um, but in, in our study, where we, we did a qualitative study of 22 men and women and followed them over three to four years, we found that those with strong family supports were uh, the only ones who were really able to make it out of a state of kind of constant instability and desperation to a, a more s stable existence. Um, and then the other one, I think, is the, the ongoing role of criminal justice institutions in interfering with the, the possibility of successfully reintegrating. And we've talked about the role of intermediate sanctions and, and supervision, um, employment verification checks. I mean, having maintaining employment or looking for a job if you're not employed is actually a condition of supervision. And um, sometimes in a, in a perverse cycle that can actually get, if you're having trouble getting a job, that could also in some cases lead to a parole violation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, all these factors, so I, I would just say that, you know, family is, is, is usually the, the, the way out of the, of the cycle for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So the big picture on reform in the United States is that since 2009, the prison population has declined in size by mm -hmm. about 7%. And that mo sounds modest. It is modest, but it's quite a change from the last f near four decades of constant annual growth in the prison population. Most states, 39 states, have reduced their prison population at some point since reaching their peak levels. But that pace of decarceration is really qu quite slow, and it doesn't you know, in order to get to the kind of goals that we're talking about now as a society, for example, the ACLU hopes to cut the prison population in half. It's increasingly encouraging members to ask presidential candidates to go on the record and commit to that kind of a goal. Mm. Um, and we've estimated that at this rate of decarceration, it's going to take over 70 years to cut the prison population mm. in half. And so we really need to expedite things and go beyond, um, you know, the reforms that have happened so far have been because of reducing admissions and sentence lengths largely for nonviolent offenses. Half the prison population is there for a violent crime and so that's really the population that we need to reduce prison terms for. And so the good news though I would say is that some states like New York, New Jersey, Vermont, 
Connecticut have reduced their prison populations by over 30%. So they're much closer to the kinds of goals that we would like to see. And at the same time that they've done this, they've generally outpaced the nationwide drop in crime rates. So we know that it's possible to reduce incarceration levels. We know what needs to happen in order to make a more meaningful dent. And so what's the, 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 the needed additional ingredient is the political will to make mm -hmm. that happen. Mm -hmm. Political will is absolutely vital, um, and public support for that is also vital. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the problem that we've had for so long is politicians have used a sort of purported um, public desire for tough sentences and tough responses as their uh, excuse for continually escalating um, the use of imprisonment. But the, the very uh, promising signs from the US is that public opinion has started to shift on this. Mm and public are starting to understand the, the damaging consequences. So, and what I would say really is that not only the USA, but other countries, the ones I mentioned, Finland and the Netherlands, they had very high incarceration rates at different points in history, but by deliberate um, uh, steps, they, they turned around that, that juggernaut. And for the US to do it, obviously it even greater impact because of the numbers involved. So I'd say that you know, there is nothing inevitable about continued prison population mm. growth. But what we need is a, uh, you know, a political will, as you point out, but we also need to, to have a, an evidence-based approach to understanding the harms uh, of overuse of incarceration. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn the lessons from countries that have sort of almost sleepwalked into it, that, mm -hmm. that there is another way. But the, it's so hard to turn it around once you go down that road. Just to introduce one other nuance that gets lost in this discussion sometimes is when we're focused squarely on the effects of incarceration, there's a broader problem which is the effect of a criminal record that hmm. precedes mm -hmm. incarceration and that interferes with people's lives equally if not more. And so things like expungement, expanding opportunities for expungement of criminal records, felony records, are really vital tools. Um, this is especially important in, in determining people's employment chances. It's, right. it's not so much the time they spent in prison, but the fact that they have a felony record at all. And then mm -hmm. trying to encourage more diversion practices mm -hmm. that, that don't, don't put people, that, that get rid of the criminal record to begin with. Right. And then uh, returning the right to vote for, sure. for felons in certain states. Mm -hmm. um, so very quickly, I wanted to touch on two other things uh, if we have time. One is education. Um, and the role that ed education in prisons might play in, in reducing reentry. Um, so I, I know there's a number of programs around the country, especially in the U.S., um, uh, like the Bard Prison Initiative, and the, the, there's a Yale uh, Prison Education Initiative as well. Um, so um, the education for prisoners was removed an, a, a number of years ago. I believe it was under the Clinton omnibus um, bill in 1994. Um, so this is now being funded privately, not through states. What role does this play? Is this working? Is it, um, so Jeff, maybe to you and then Catherine briefly um, for the international perspective. Yeah, Nazgul might actually have better, better command over the state differences in this, but there are some states, New York comes to mind as being one of them, that have increased educational opportunities for people in prison. And mm -hmm. there is a literature showing that this is a very effective um, form of treatment, a uh, uh, yeah, form of rehabilitation in some sense. Um, for people to make better lives for themselves coming out. So expanding educational opportunities, especially higher education, is, is really an important priority that, that does seem to work. Mm -hmm. Let's go. That's right, and right now there's actually consideration um, in Congress to reinstate access to Pell Grants uh, for people yeah. that are in prison. Mm -hmm. And so we're optimistic, cautiously optimistic, that we can undo the mistake that happened in the 1990s and reinstate access to Pell Grants for everyone in prison without any restrictions. So mm -hmm. we'll see. And Catherine, do you see positive results in internationally? Um, well, not so much, I have to oh. say. You know, it's, it's uh, a very mixed picture internationally. The problem is that it's expensive to provide education yeah. and work opportunities. And when prisons are overused and overcrowded and under-resourced, it's the first thing to go out the window. So if we do want to provide this very important opportunity for people, then we need to reduce the numbers first. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also make the point that it's not just education that helps people. Um, it's having a meaningful access to work that 
is you know decently remunerated. No one's saying that there shouldn't be deductions for you know the, the cost of, of living and so on in prison. But I mean, the rate at which U.S. prisoners are paid for the work that they do is uh, I've read that it's sort of you know cents, it's mm -hmm. cents per day, not dollars. So you know that that to me is a is a is a gap. And meaningful work can be just as important for prisoners learning, uh, you know, relearning or maybe learning for the first time what it means to make that contribution. The pride, you mm -hmm. know, the ability to learn on the job for some people is easier than, than book learning. So right. let's not ignore that one. Great. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we are going to have to uh, end our discussion here. So many, many thanks to our fantastic panel for taking the time to be here, uh, to share their knowledge and expertise. Uh, Ms. Catherine Hurd, uh, Dr. Jeff Moronoff, and Dr. Nazgul Ganush. Again, thank you so much to the fantastic panel. Thank you for uh, all of your insights and for the discussion. Um, and thank you to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. Catherine, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.